You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Allen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. Hello and welcome to Shrink the Virus with myself, Steve Allen and... Rob Seltzer. And we are here to talk about the psychological aspects of life during the pandemic. Now, today we've got a really cool guest that we're very excited about. Her name is Professor Claire Delaney. And Claire is a professor of health education and a clinical ethicist at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. And she's going to join us in a short while to talk a little bit about how clinical ethics works in a hospital setting and how it can help inform us regarding how we manage the COVID pandemic in our hospitals. Anyway, before we do the usual things, we better do a timestamp for you in case things happen between now and you listening so that you know where we're up to. It's Friday, the 24th of April. And of course, my good friend, Rob Seltzer, we went to school together. Roberto, how are you, man? Good, man. You know, I'm just thinking. Yeah. We, su- we surround ourselves with really smart people and it kind of makes <laughs> us look smart. Like we get on these really high profile, super, super intelligent people. And maybe we kind of live in the shadow a bit of that. Or we get a bit of the light of that, I think, sometimes. So people oh. sort of mistakenly believe that we're smart. But I've got, oh. to, tell you, I've got to tell you about something that happened to me during the week. It okay, pro- go, go ahead. It proves that you can know a lot and still be really, really dumb. So a couple of days ago, I started to notice that my heart was racing faster. Um, I was getting a few palpitations. I was feeling a bit jittery and I was thinking, oh, gee, maybe I'm getting really worried about something. And then the next day, as I'm reaching for my seventh cup of coffee, I'm thinking, gee, maybe, maybe this coffee's got something to do with it. Stop the coffee the next day. Bingo, bango, bongo. No more racing heart. No more palpitations. Feeling a whole lot calmer. And, but I knew this. I've known this for like 30 years. And yet, did it even twig? No. That is, I think that is so important because it underlines one of the most important things of life in this pandemic, which is, you know, a lot of the times we finesse things beautifully, but mm. it, the truth of the matter is it's the basics that are important. Yep. Did you yep. eat? Did you sleep? Have you got your proper nutrition, including not too much coffee and not too much grog? You know, the basics, you know, you for, <laughs> we forget them because we spend all our life talking, you know, finessing things and looking at research and you forget that the, the you know, all that fancy stuff, has to have the foundations of the incredibly important basic building blocks. Throw in those three things, plus attention to relationships and attention to stress, and you pretty much got 90% of psychiatry (laughs) rolled up in one. (laughs) Don't, Don't reveal the secret. How about you, man? What's your work been like? You know, it's funny you should say that. I, I also, fry, I fried my brain on Wednesday night. You know, I overdid it. And I know, I, I know I do this sometimes, but I really fried my brain. I got home Wednesday night and about by about nine o'clock when I finally got to sort of turn things off, um, I could just tell that it wasn't working. It's like it had seized up and I was brain dead and I was, oh, I was just sitting on the couch just thinking, oh, 
I, I'm not quite sure that I'm okay. I was mm. as good as gold. Mm. You know, in fact, you know, I did what I only do about three times a year and I took it one to mesopam because mm. I just had to turn my brain off and mm. get to sleep. But I'd had this day where I had like super busy. I'd been up since about 5.30 mm. and I had two presentations to give and I had to make a video for staff support at, um, at my hospital, Peter Mac. Mm. And, uh, None of the three things I prepared, so I had to prepare on the run during the day. And one of them, I almost had a panic attack on camera. So, so what happens is um, we've got this amazing CEO, and she does these beautiful staff updates three times a week. And on the in the middle of the week, she invites me there to touch base on staff well-being and maybe talk about, say, you know, sleep or something like that. And yeah. so she does this little intro for a couple of minutes. And then she says, now, you know, Professor Steve Allen's going to talk about that. Da, 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 da. And I knew she was getting towards me, and I could feel my you know, my heart rate going up and I could feel my mouth going dry. I've always got water with me. You'll never see me talk without water. And so I start doing some breathing and then I start thinking through what am I going to do? Because I think I'm having a panic attack and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to have to leave. And this is on camera being live streamed out on YouTube to all the staff. And so I'm thinking I'm going to have to come up with an excuse to leave. And then she throws to me. And so I whacked a big smile on my face, which always calms me down, you know, even though it's fake. And, uh, you know, I launched and, and it all went away and everything was fine. But I honestly, I thought I was going to have to, I thought I was going to have to, uh, you know, in a live stream say, oh, excuse me, I don't feel well and walk off. But I got away with it. Have you ever had a panic attack at work? Oh, look, actually, you know, so I get that feeling a lot and I do the breath bubble and I do all these little tricks, you know, I roll up my sleeve. I have all these tricks because I've done, you know, some stuff around anxiety management for performance issues. But twice I have. The worst one was once I was giving a board presentation. So, you know, I'm the director of service and every six months or year I have to give a presentation to the board about how things are going. And I turn up to this board presentation and it's very formal. They're all super senior people, you know, on the board of this hospital. And, uh, you know, I get up and I have to start, you know, saying how our work's going over the year, what's going on. And about a minute into it, I got exactly the same feeling I just started, I was just describing. And uh, I didn't have any water. I'd forgotten to get water. And I sort of, I just couldn't go on. My mouth was so dry, it was sort of sticking. And so I just said to the group, I said, look, I'm very sorry, but I don't feel well. I need some water. And I've got this incredible boss. Believe it, he's actually a surgeon of all things. And he, I think, cottoned on immediately what was going on. Mm. And he just said, Steve, get water, I'll take over. And he started speaking to my slides, which was just amazing. amazing. And I walked off. Someone gave me water. I had a water. I waited about a minute, did slow breathing. And I you know, sort of, sort of tensed myself and went back and took over and everything went really beautifully. You know, once I relaxed into it, it was good as gold. And uh, it was great afterwards, you know, again, no negative outcomes. The CEO texted me, the chair of the board texted me, are you okay? I think they all, none of them thought I was anxious, I don't think. I think they Mm. thought I had the flu or something. Well, that's the interesting thing because, I mean, again, we've known each other for decades and you come across as amazingly confident and um, quite laid back um, and yet, you know, you have these episodes of anxiety. I mean, how, yeah, does, I how does that work, man? <laughs> you know, it's weird because like, I've always been a fairly anxious person. So I'm really used to it sort of thing. And like probably the first 20, 30, oh, no, 35 years of my life, I didn't even realize I was anxious. I, I just mm. thought, oh, this happens. And I hadn't even put a word to it. Mm. But um, so look, I guess the thing is I've got, the, I've got this weird mixture of like I'm an extreme extrovert. There's nothing I like more than being the center of attention. Yet... <laughs> lead up the lead up makes me quite anxious and so i'm pretty good at covering it and you know the number of times i've had 
you know, quite severe anxiety and people don't even have a clue. I once had a minor anxiety attack when I was on ABC News Breakfast. I froze. I was on with Catherine Devaney, you know, who I co-wrote my book with, and she could feel me freezing and she just took over the talking. And even afterwards, you know, even afterwards, people said, oh, you were fantastic. And I said, well, what about my panic attack? And they said, so, sorry, we didn't even notice. Yeah. And then they invited me back to give a regular segment. You know, I used to do the yeah. news, sort of curating the news on ABC Breakfast. Um, so, yeah, so I, I don't even, you know, I sort of take it for granted. I sort of think of it a bit like epilepsy. I don't think of it as like, I certainly don't think of it as a weakness. I just think of it as, ha, I get a bit of anxiety. Every once in a while, I get a bit panicky. You know, who gives a damn? If anything, if anything, I remind myself that it actually softens me. People probably think better of me. And I'm constantly telling myself, mm. don't worry. They don't think you're an idiot. They probably think you're mm. just human. And that's probably better. So, you know, so that's how I sort of do it in my own head. You know, you mentioned a couple of things just there, Steve, and we'll get to this in other shows like the breath bubble and some behavioural cues that you talked about. We will talk about that um, in some upcoming shows. But uh, look, I, as I say, I've known you for over 30 years. I really didn't know this about you until today. Oh, really? So, yeah, no. yeah. No, seriously, seriously. I mean, yeah. you're, you're always a bit racy, but, I, you know, in terms of like, you know, you talk very, very quickly. But I hadn't, I hadn't picked up that you were that anxious, to be perfectly honest. That's bizarre. And, you know, I, let me just add one thing, because, you know, when you say that, you know, the one thing I think most people like me hate is mm. when people give us sympathy about it. Because mm. sympathy sort of, I don't know, to me it implies a weakness. I know people mean well, but mm. the one thing I can't, you know, the one thing I cannot stand is if people act like, oh, you poor thing, I have to take advantage. Bullshit. Mm. You know, I'm as tough as nails and yeah, I get anxiety, That's but true. you know, it doesn't stop me. And so the only thing I say is, is please don't be sympathetic towards me. Our next guest, um, Claire Delaney, I've known her for a while. I've interviewed her once or twice before and I've worked with her as well. So, you know, she's a clinical ethicist and she does some amazing stuff. So why don't we flick across and bring her on the line? And here you are, Claire. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's a pleasure. Thank you for asking. Hey, why don't we um, start the ball rolling by asking you the most obvious question of the lot. How is COVID affecting your everyday life right now? Well, like many people at a personal level, I'm working from home and from a work perspective, I'm spending loads of time on virtual sites like Zoom or um, other, other similar ones. So uh, I'm, I'm splitting my time between the Children's Hospital and Peter Mac and I'm working in the clinical ethics space, so, but it's all remotely. So, We're going to get onto that, but what? And personally, you feeling okay about it all? Because there must be enormous pressure on ethicists at a time like this to come up with answers and to talk people through the challenges. If, like at times, I know I've felt a little bit overwhelmed. Are you getting that at all, or are you just totally cool, calm? And no, collected? no. I think I'm heading towards the overwhelmed feeling more than cool. Um, especially, there's been an absolute flurry of ethics articles, papers, discussions, debates. Mm. Um, about uh, COVID and it's just been an onslaught, a tsunami. <laughs> so so that's changed my work a lot and I've become a rapid reader of articles and a converter into what does this mean for people. 
Mm. I think ethicists have become the rock stars a bit now. You're in the spotlight, you know, people are actually listening to what you say, very attuned to the, to the yeah. ethical issues. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a term that's come up a lot, which I actually hadn't heard before. Um, it's, the term is moral injury. Could you, could you talk us through that, what that actually is? Yeah, I think, that in fact, I, I, I could expand it a little bit, um, not to take it away from that, but uh, three terms, moral distress, moral injury, and even moral regret are um, three terms that are coming up a lot. Now, I'll start with moral distress because it's very similar to moral injury. And uh, moral distress is... Um, related to a feeling, uh, um, a feeling that you are being made to do something or you have to do something which you feel that professionally is the wrong thing to do. Yeah. And so that yeah. causes a dissonance or a distress that um, uh, whereas you would have liked to do this certain treatment for a patient which is what you would normally do, but because of situations out of your control or because you've, you've just had to do it, you can't do it. Um, and moral injury is, means the same sort of thing. Moral injury is a term that comes from the military, but it's been being applied more to uh, health professionals. And I think it just refers to a more um, solid uh, injury uh, to your professional integrity, something that's perhaps a little more permanent. Could you give us a clinical situation to kind of paint a picture of where these kind of injuries and distress may occur? Yeah, look, it, they can be um, even a, a moral injury could be or a, a feeling of moral distress could relate to where you would normally give, um, um, uh, for example, it's coming up in bone marrow transplant in, in, in children even, the, the, um, the usual um, approach or the, uh, what's available to you is a, is a transplant with an overseas donor mm. and um, because of the influence of COVID, uh, that's not available. So they're going to, you know, haplo, which refers to parental um, um, transplant or donor, mm. I should say. And um, so that can be um, somewhat distressing because you know it's not the optimal treatment mm -hmm. um, and yet, you know, you're forced to do that. Um, so, so it sounds like this is an issue whereby, you know, in particular when you can't provide the normal care you'd like to provide because perhaps your hospital's being overwhelmed by COVID or because you've lost too many staff for COVID. So I imagine there's stuff you can do in advance, like you could think through in advance who is going to get treatment and who isn't going to get treatment so that the distress in the moment is not so great. Mm. Is that true? That is true. That is true. And I think um, I think there's a bit of maybe it's another term, anticipatory uh, distress uh, that, that's occurring, especially in Australia. I, I think that um, in places like New York and, and in Italy, the distress is very real and would be happening at, on a daily basis. But in Australia, we're planning uh, to change treatments and we've started to restrict treatments on the basis of conserving resources. But um, so, yes, uh, although you can plan, I still think there's an element of distress and anxiety that's occurring. That's totally realistic. So as an ethicist, how do you help people or hospitals think 
in advance. Like just imagine you, you in, you've got a situation where, say, um, you anticipate 50% of your staff might be missing because they've got COVID themselves, which has happened in some hospitals overseas at the moment. So mm. how do you help the hospitals develop an ethical framework to figure out what work they will and won't do? Um, yeah, so I think how we help is how we always help, which is um, highlight what is ethically important in delivering care. So those ethical principles haven't actually changed, but in uh, that is that um, the idea is that you are um, uh, obligated and and um, you do want to provide the most optimal optimal care for a patient. You don't want to harm them. Um, you want to respect people's autonomy and and preferences and you want to deliver what resources you have fairly so they're the standard ethical principles i know i remember them from medical school maleficence uh, beneficence non-maleficence autonomy and distributive justice am i right Indeed, yes. Uh-huh. Do I get 100%? Do I get 100%? My get 100%. first ever. My first ever 100%. So, so, now, so now I'll give you the exam question for COVID-19. Okay, what Rob change- has to answer this. <laughs> okay, hit me, hit me, Claire. What changes um, in a health pandemic is much more of a focus on the principle of fair allocation of resources. Mm-hmm. And so how an ethicist helps a hospital or clinicians is to give them some structure for thinking about balancing those principles um, and those values and how do you um, provide as optimal care as possible for each individual patient whilst considering protection for staff and even the wider health of the population conserving resources in case there's an influx. Oh, I was waiting for a question. Uh, well, oh, so. <laughs> so hit him with this one. How would you do it, Rob, if so, you were at the hospital? The yes, yeah. here's the question. Is it ethically okay, okay uh, to provide less than usual care to some patients in order to focus on the well-being of the community? Tough question, Claire. Uh, <laughs> as I'm and while there. you're doing thinking time, let me just tell Claire, Rob through <laughs> medical school was every year either the top or the second top student, and he finished his medical school on the top, whereas I finished on the bottom, so I'm loving watching him squirm, squirm, squirm. I would say uh, he's my best uh, promotional agent. Um, I think it depends what ethical school you subscribe to, no? So whether you have a utilitarian school, so the, the best for the most amount of people, or whether you have a very kind of, what do you call it, like a, is it a deontological school where you say there are absolute rights and absolute wrongs? Yes. So, I mean, I think that's the, that's the beauty of ethics, isn't it? That you can draw from different schools. There's no one right answer. It just helps you think through a problem. Correct. So it makes you think about what particular ethical school you're coming from a lot of the time. Yeah. And that's why um, ethics is, ethical decisions are, uh, are both interesting and fascinating and also challenging yep. because there are no absolutes in um, weighing up those values. They're all prima facie important and equal, you know, and they all have equal value and people will put different value on them. And so, um, and that's why considering what is ethically appropriate to do is always useful to do in a group and in a discussion uh, so that you can get um, as many perspectives on those values as possible.
And can I just say from a practical point of view, because, you know, through your work through Peter Mac, I've been a little bit involved and had to, you know, think through some of these questions with my group. And as well as I think preventing a bit of moral distress when the time comes, I think it'll also prevent a lot of arguments on the ground at the time because our teams, because we're asking our teams these questions, yeah. um, they're getting their disputes out the way. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully we don't get to a point where we have to limit yeah. things too much. But, you know, if we do, mm. I'm hoping we'll, have already thought through and gone through the arguments and be on the other side of them and be able to work as a team because, you know, that's sort of so essential. Yeah. It's been really helpful. Yeah. So, and, and that's often a feature of um, these ethical challenges is the first, your first reaction is, in a, is an emotional one. Mm. And what clinical ethics does is help bring some um, ways of thinking through that first emotional reaction and bringing some um, reasons to the um, to the feeling <laughs> to get a solution. With with ethics, um, this is just sort of a, a broad pulling back kind of question. With with ethics, are you are you trying to take emotion out of the equation, or are you trying to understand where the emotion comes from? I mean, how do you deal with emotion with ethics? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it goes to the to to the. Um, issue of moral distress because that distress tends to be an emotional type of feeling. So what um, ethics does with that is is give people a way of thinking about that emotion. So we don't want to remove it. Um, in fact, we want to put it right there in the centre and, and acknowledge it. But, but after that, you then have to ask, well, um, what are my reasons for feeling like this? Am I thinking that um, there is a real a wrong that's being happen uh, that's happening here, mm -hmm. and why do I think it's wrong, mm -hmm. and who is being harmed, um, and is it my only choice, or are there other options? So it starts um, unpacking the feeling, which gives you a sense of um, control yeah. and an outcome that you can justify at least. I want to bring you down from the hospital level to the personal level, the, mm. the staff member level, because I've noticed quite clearly, as we all have, some healthcare workers overseas have inadequate or even no personal protective equipment, and yet they still have to provide care to COVID patients. Yep. So my question is, is it ethical for healthcare workers to refuse to provide care if they don't feel adequately protected? Um. Well, now it's my turn to say that's a hard question. <laughs> but um, I think what that under, underneath that question um, is uh, a balancing of two really important values. One is that um, health professionals actually have an ethical obligation. It's part of their duty to provide health care. And because it's an, an obligation, it means they do at times put themselves at some risk or they experience discomfort, or they still have to treat someone even if they don't like them very much, or they think the person has contributed to their own health problem. So there's a duty to, to help and, and care for people. But that duty is not absolute. And um, they, they don't have to put themselves at risk, but the grey area is how much risk um, are they obliged to put themselves um, too. And I think to answer that question, you, you have to do that same um, analysis of the values. So what risk are we talking about? So it means really uh, 
uh, trying to find out factually how much risk um, they are being exposed to and if they were to pull back, how much detriment would that have on the patient? So the answer is uh, no, uh, or that yes, they can refuse, but they have to have some good reasons for refusing. I want to ask you, I want to do what Rob did last time, and I want to bring in um, a uh, an emotional angle to it because I've noticed some doctors and nurses and clinicians and the same of all essential workers, some are full of bravado and they've got this attitude that I'm going in there and I don't care if I catch COVID. Uh, you know, it's a real sort of like a soldier's bravado yeah. and others don't have it. And so the emotional difference between them mm -hmm. creates a tension where there's one group who sort of point at the other group and saying, stop running for the hills, even if the people running for the hills have thought it through and there's very good and clear reasons, they might even be vulnerable to COVID in some way, like have lung disease. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, that those the other people are getting annoyed, annoyed at the ones with bravado and saying, stop setting guidelines according to your stupid bravado. And so I'm wondering, how do you unpack the emotion? When you've got a group of people, how do you unpack the emotions versus the um, sensible ethical arguments. Yeah, I think that 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 happens a bit, and it's been talked about. And should um, health professionals who take on a, um, a heroic or highly altruistic approach, um, should you know, is that the right thing to do? And I think again, bringing in some sort of structured thinking about it. And that, that's why the planning and getting the group to talk about what is appropriate, how much personal protective equipment um, do we all agree is needed for this procedure, um, who should be uh, uh, on the front line and who should be protected, um, who has particular issues that they'd like to talk about, um, you know, like lung disease or family circumstances. So I think it's really important to identify um, the risks um, associated with, with any treatment so that there's a general agreement about, you know, from the whole team. Just to change tack a bit now, um, Claire, there's been a lot of talk about the app the government is developing, the contact tracing app, which you mm -hmm. download onto your phone and um, it... Uh, records uh, who you have been close to using some fantastic whiz-bang technology. Can you talk us through the ethics of, of that kind of um, technology? Because on one hand, it seems that there's the community that's being served. On the other hand, there's the individual right to privacy. Yeah. Um, and there's a there appears to be a tension between those two. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and they're the two values that are absolutely at stake. Um, you know, the value of keeping track of, um, of the virus to limit spread. So you get a big protective effect uh, on the community. But also the um, extremely important value of individual privacy as we go about our daily lives. So um, I think the what's really important uh, is to... Uh, the ethical question you're really asking is um, for us, for an individual person, is should I download this map, this app, um, and uh, and make this contribution for the good of the community? Mm. Now, when you ask a should question, the next step is well, what are the pros and cons? What options do I have? Mm. And um, so you do have to get as many facts as as possible about 
well, would that tracing app actually lead to uh, what it's claimed to lead to, um, you know, the, the capacity to really slow the spread? So it's important to look at that and also to look at the risks of um, um, allowing yourself to be traced. Would it, would it end um, neatly and as soon as that's finished or is it a slippery slope to once you've, um, uh, you know, allowed that to happen so, I, I, you know, I think you, you do have to think of um, each of the pros and cons and it becomes an individual decision, I think, ethically. Mm. It's up to each person to think mm. through what it means for them. So the devil is in the detail here. Yeah, clearly. the devil is in the detail. It also reminds me a bit of the, the types of ethical framework we apply to research mm. um, where people are being asked to, to volunteer for the good of someone else. Yes. And um, so the ethical um, checks and balances are quite high in that case because mm. you are asking someone to do something that's beyond uh, mm. what they would normally do. Claire, um, I'm going to steal Rob's final question. Rob started asking every person who comes on our podcast <laughs> this question, and I love it. I'm, I'm stealing it. Um, what is something you're doing better today than you were in the pre-COVID era? I think what this COVID um, era has done to clinical ethics, uh, like a lot of other areas, is absolutely... Um, put the spotlight on the ordinary work that you do and make you um, be crystal clear about what you're doing and why. I think that because it's required you to justify, um, well, if I put it on um, in my work, normally uh, clinical ethicists will be given a problem, there's a bit of time to think about it, uh, to prepare the documentation, to do a bit of research, but what COVID has done is speed up and accelerate and uh, that work and also push you to be very clear about what is ethically important. And I can see that happening even with clinicians, that it, it, um, it pushes them to think about the standard care that they're doing and is this, you know, really necessary or is this the best way to do it or could we do it in a different way and, in a, and keep on doing it in that different way? It's beautiful, isn't it? It's brought us, uh, uh, you know, it's a horrible thing for our community to go through, but it's brought us a focus in healthcare that we haven't had for a long time. Yeah, that's right. Um, professor Claire Delaney, thank you so much. Just to remind everyone, Claire is a professor of health education and a clinical ethicist at the Royal Children's Hospital. And can I tell you another thing too? Part of the reason that we wanted Claire is that we've both been listening to and a podcast that Claire's part of called Essential Ethics. Um, it's from the Royal Children's Hospital. Uh, it's a, there's a whole lot of episodes. Um, I've found it fantastic. All you have to do is, you know, Google it or chuck it into your usual podcast carrier. Um, Everyone tune in and have a look at that. Claire, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Claire. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Rob. So that's it today for Shrink the Virus. We hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to tell your friends and family and pretty much your neighbours, anybody else you bump into. Um, although with social distancing, I guess you won't be bumping into too many people. Don't forget to tell them to subscribe to the show. We have a Facebook page called Shrink the Virus. We also have an email address, aren't we impressive, called shrinkthevirus at gmail.com. Steve has a website, steveellen.com, with lots and lots of interviews, <laughs> lots and lots of info, I should say. Don't forget to tune in to uh, 3RRR and our show every Sunday at 10am called Radiotherapy 
Steve, and you know what we also did this week? We started an Instagram page too called Shrink the Virus, obviously. Um, and of, of course, a big thank you for the people at Triple R who are helping us, Beck, Mia, Grace, Elizabeth, and Michael. And also, of course, a special thanks to Prof Claire Delaney for coming on the show this week. See you very soon. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.